From the Center for a New American Security, this is Stories from the Back Channel, the podcast about great moments in national security as told from the inside. I'm Elon Goldenberg, the director of the Middle East Security Program here at CNAS and a veteran of the Pentagon and State Department. Let's do a thought experiment. Picture a soldier in the Army. Is it someone who sounds like this guy? Or maybe him. Hey, I'm gonna lay down a suppressive fire for the two or three gunner to shoot a two or three. What about her? In those genuine life or death moments, time kind of slows down. You notice really strange things. This is Kayla Williams. She's my colleague here at CNAS, where she's the director of the Military Veterans and Society Program. She was a translator in the U.S. Army. Oftentimes, she was on the front lines in harm's way, along with soldiers who were clearing the streets of Iraqi insurgents after the fall of Saddam Hussein. During her deployments, she often had to overcome sexist attitudes from others who didn't think she belonged. There were multiple instances of sexual harassment that I encountered and endured while I was in the military. Kayla later had to fight against other entrenched prejudices. This time, it was against veterans who suffered from mental illness. I had kind of a crash course in brain injuries and mental health conditions. But let's not jump ahead too much. We'll start with what inspired Kayla to become an Army translator in the first place. It turned out to be a job that appealed to many different parts of her personality. So like a lot of people, I did not have just one reason to join the military. It was a lot of things that coalesced. So I grew up in a household with very modest means, and I wanted to be able to give something back to our country that had invested in me when I was a kid and on food stamps. I also was seeking a challenge. I majored in literature in undergrad, so I felt like I cheated because they gave me a college degree for reading books, which is what I do for fun. And then I lost my first job after college, my first serious, serious job, and was trying to figure out what to do next. I wanted money for grad school. I wanted a new challenge. I wanted to get out of the rut that I was digging for myself. And everything kind of just came together when I realized that the military would give me access to the GI Bill for graduate school. And they were willing to pay me to learn a foreign language instead of me having to pay somebody else to teach me one. And it was definitely something outside of my comfort zone and a challenge and a way for me to serve and give back. And it was just random chance that I ended up being assigned to Arabic as opposed to Chinese or Korean, two of the other major languages at the time. And I was learning Arabic on 9-11. So I knew right away I was going to have a really different military career than I might have otherwise guessed. And I was assigned to the 101st Airborne Division Air Assault and took part of the initial invasion of Iraq in early 2003. The attack came in waves, cruise missiles, followed by the F-117 stealth bombers with so-called bunker-busting bombs. Their target, a bunker believed to be sheltering what are called top leaders of the Iraqi regime. Now, this is what it looks like. You go in on the initial invasion. What is that like? So, it's so strange to think of it now, but a lot safer than it was during the height of the surge that came later. Uh, major combat operations weren't necessarily as terrible, at least in, in many places. So... Another thing that a lot of folks don't seem to remember with this hindsight, the way that we have re-envisioned things, is that at the very, very beginning, at least the Iraqi people who were willing to approach and speak to U.S. troops, many of them were, in fact, happy to see us. We come to Iraq with respect for its citizens, 
for their great civilization and for the religious faiths they practice. We have no ambition in Iraq except to remove a threat and restore control of that country to its own people. Everybody wanted to tell me, as an Arabic speaker, their story of suffering under the Ba'ath regime, and they were full of hope for a better future. I'm sure there were people who did not feel that way. They didn't, you know, choose to come up and talk to me, but literally there were little girls who gave me flowers when we first came into populated areas. As the crowd danced and cheered, the statue of the man who had dominated their lives for the past 35 years toppled. The chains that brought this image down were as nothing to the chains that had bound up people for so long. Wrote a book about this experience. Uh, Love my rifle more than you, young and female in the U.S. Army. You know what were your expectations going in, and what were the challenges with being a woman in the military at that time? I don't know that I had really strong expectations about what my military experience would be like. I vaguely assumed before I signed up that the chances of me going to war were pretty small. Then once I joined the military, even going through basic training, and I had drill sergeants who had been to other places, who had been to Somalia or Kosovo, and started to click in with me that the chances of me deploying were actually higher than I might have assumed before I took the oath of enlistment. So by the time we actually knew that we were going to war, I wasn't completely shocked. The other thing that I didn't think about before I joined, which is totally on me for not having pondered this, but the extent of the sexism that I would encounter being a woman in a heavily male-dominated military, that did still end up surprising me, like exactly how entrenched casual sexism was in just day-to-day interactions. That ended up being something I had probably more difficulty handling than the deployment itself. According to the Department of Veterans Affairs, 55% of women using the VA healthcare system say they experienced sexual harassment while in the military. 38% of men reported the same. Now, like, can you give us an example of that? Um, so hard to pick just one. Uh, <laughs> when I first showed up at a new site, I spent maybe six weeks at a listening post observation post on the side of Sinjar Mountain. And... There were maybe... Which is a mountain in Iraq where... Yep, at the border with Syria. And when we showed up, there was another team there of artillery guys. There were four of them probably. And then my team shows up. And when I got out of the vehicle, one of the artillery guys said, hey, that one has boobs. Like just that, (laughs) that basic. And it just constant going to the chow hall and walking through rows of tables and people just staring, guys, men, staring at me, the constant staring, the constant little jokes, being called a female all the time. No one thing by itself was horrible, but the combination of constant chronic reminders that you're a little bit of an outsider, uh, they do end up wearing on you. And there were multiple instances of sexual harassment that I encountered and endured while I was in the military that at the time ended up seeming vaguely normal. You just get so inured to it that you almost ignore it or just drive on. And it wasn't until I got out and was working a normal office job years later that I was like, that was profoundly not normal. Hey, this would never happen at Rand where I used to work to that like degree. Yeah, I mean, even working at the Pentagon, I could see a little bit of that on occasion. And it was mostly working with civilians, but nothing like I'm sure what you saw and encountered, obviously, especially out in the field. It was also interesting, though, to meet Iraqi men 
especially those that didn't know I spoke Arabic. And I would occasionally, you know, know they were saying awful things about me and bust them and they would be mortified. So you also talked about you said it was safer, actually, during that first year before the insurgency really got going. But you were in harm's way. And what was Mm. it? Can you talk about an experience of what that felt like? The story that was probably the most intense situation for me when we were in Baghdad, in the Dura neighborhood of Baghdad, one day there was a call for a quick reaction force mission. There had been an explosion and they needed a translator. So I went out with the infantry and we're like speeding through these streets that normally had been full of people and they're like dead silent. And there's little kids pointing us which way to go. And we show up and there had been like some unexploded ordnance. I believe what happened was that the locals were trying to show some Americans where it was, asking it to get cleaned up. Like, could you please remove these bombs from our yard so our kids don't get killed playing soccer? And one of them went off and injured several U.S. soldiers and also several Iraqis. And I translated while we provided medical care for the injured Iraqi civilians, one of whom died. And it was just so intense, like watching the infantry guys doing what they're supposed to do, which is to, you know, maintain their sectors. They didn't we didn't know if we were going to come under attack. And so they're keeping us safe and we're providing medical care. And one of the things that it impressed upon me was how much training matters and muscle memory takes over. Like there are certain things you're taught to do and it comes naturally to move in certain ways, to do certain things if you've drilled on them over and over. And the feeling of how surreal things are in those moments when, you know, these genuine life or death moments, time kind of slows down. You notice really strange things. I notice like a fly near a bleeding man's like wound and thinking like it's disrespectful of the fly and then thinking that's completely absurd. All day long, I didn't eat, I didn't drink. I was just so focused on doing the job. And it wasn't until after it was over and things calmed down that I was like really had this intense emotional reaction to not being able to save this man and worrying about what's going to happen to his family. And it was so early in the war, we didn't have the system to compensate those in those situations. We didn't pay blood money. And just worrying about his widow and his his children and um, the feeling of helplessness. But, But also that whole time of being acutely aware of the fact that like we could die, right? Like unexploded ordnance killed them. Unexploded ordnance could kill us anywhere that we were, it's a war zone, people are dying. So that was more intense for me than the time like we took small arms fire. <laughs> huh. So you also talked about uh, your interactions with the, the Yazidis. There are about half a million Yazidis, most of them in Iraq. They're an ancient people whose religion is a blend of traditions, including Christianity. One of their beliefs is that Mount Sinjar, where the refugees are trapped, is where Noah's Ark came to rest. Uh, which is actually really interesting now because you're dealing with them in 2003, but obviously they were also exposed to really horrific uh, genocide, essentially by ISIS, uh, later on in 2014 and 15. Those that have made it to safety tell harrowing stories of men being slaughtered and young women taken away by the militants. ISIS began its rampage across northern Iraq two months ago. They call the land they've seized an Islamic state, and they've targeted anyone who isn't a Sunni Muslim. They really wanted to communicate their fear of what would happen when we left. And it was extremely difficult for me even at the time because I'm not completely stupid. And to say, knowing 
about U.S. history, like, you're going to do great in a democracy. Like, minorities do fine in democracies. We have a really great history in the United States, so I'm sure it's going to work out fine for you with an even worse security situation. It was very awkward to try to sell the idea of democracy in that moment, but they were very clear warning me, like, if the Americans leave, the Muslims will steal our women and cut down our fig trees. And I don't know about the fig trees, but the news has been very clear that that is exactly what happened with women, Yazidi women being kidnapped and, and forced into sex slavery. Thousands of Yazidis were killed and displaced, women and girls taken away to be sold and enslaved, many still to this day. So coming home and watching what happened from afar on TV. I remember when I was at work, when the news broke about a horrible attack on the Yazidis that killed hundreds. Kurdish officials in northern Iraq report that fighters of the Islamic militant group ISIS have carried out a massacre. The last time I looked it up, it was the second worst terrorist attack after 9-11 was on these Yazidi people uh, and just standing in the lunchroom crying. I mean, they warned us, they told us this would happen and we didn't stop it. This then became one of the first interventions that the United States did when it went back into Iraq. Counter-ISIS was actually at Sinjar Mountain in efforts to try and save some of these people, but they had already experienced so much loss and so much terror and continued to. U.S. and Iraqi airdrops are helping to keep them alive, but these are risky missions. Sometimes the helicopters are shot at by the militants, and the help has come too late for more than 50 children who have already died. So it's amazing because, you know, and I read your, this in your book, um, you wrote this in 2005, long before, you mm -hmm. know, any, any of this actually happened. I mean, and I remember they were, they, were, where they were saying, you know, they were asking you to write letters to George they, Bush. So they, they, they were fellahin, these are peasants. They wanted our empty cardboard boxes to use as flooring in their homes. They had very simple lives. They were very poor. And they would point at our military radios and ask us to call Mr. Bush. Call Mr. Bush and tell him. Tell him about the Yazidis. Tell him about us. Tell him we're good people. And, like, I, I don't actually have a direct line to the president. He's not like my tribal elder that I can just call up and hang out with, right? Like, that's not how this works. So when I came home, I tried. I, you know, I published the book. I told as many people as I could about the Yazidis. But obviously, it's been terrible. This is unfortunately the American legacy in Iraq in so many ways. It's one of the things that drove me in the direction that I went when I got out, too. I saw the limits on my ability to make a difference in our foreign policy as a junior enlisted soldier. Like there's only so much that I could do walking around Iraq carrying a rifle. And so when my enlistment was coming to an end, that was one of the motivations for choosing not to continue my military career. Just like I had a lot of reasons to get in, I had a lot of reasons to get out. And one of them was that I wanted to use my GI Bill per my long-term plan, go to graduate school, but I had decided to uh, major in international relations and try to make a difference in our policies from a higher level because what I saw on the ground was so profoundly not working. So then you come home. Mm -hmm. You know, you sort of say in your book that coming home from Iraq, you sort of felt like you lost the year of your life. Can you explain that? Like America kept doing its own thing while I was gone, and I'm over there having these really intense experiences, and everybody else is just continuing through their day-to-day, -day, and I felt like 
my year had happened completely separately from what everybody else was going through. And I also was so astonished to come home and recognize that people had no idea what we were doing. I'd become a foreigner in my own country, the country that I went off to war for. So how do you move beyond this to reintegrating into society? So for me, it just it just took some time, right? I mean, I had a lot of what are kind of common symptoms of post-traumatic stress for about three to six months after I got home, which is totally normal, right? Like some of the things that keep you alive in a combat zone, like being keyed up and attuned to any possible threat of danger and ready to respond instantly if you perceive danger like that keeps you alive in a combat zone swerving to avoid trash in the road kept me alive in iraq not adaptive back in the united states so it just took time to dial that sensitivity level and reactivity back down to a normal u.s level where i'm not in danger day to day so tell us about your husband brian and how you guys met (laughs) so i met brian on the side of sinjar mountain He was in charge of the artillery guys. He would come up and bring them resupply and check on them and spell them periodically. It's not a romantic area. We didn't start dating in Iraq, but I knew he was smart and funny and sarcastic and interesting and had good taste in music and books. And I knew he was really cool and wanted to get to know him better. And then in October of 2003, he was really severely wounded in one of the first organized attacks in our area of operations. So shrapnel from a roadside bomb penetrated his skull and traveled forward and exited near his eye. So it was a very severe injury. He's extraordinarily lucky that he didn't die. He was evacuated by helicopter to Baghdad for neurosurgery. And then after he was stabilized, back to Walter Reed for further recovery. He was released from Walter Reed and sent back to Fort Campbell around the same time that the rest of us came back from the Middle East. And he and I started dating at that point and and ended up falling in love and starting the journey that we're still on. So then you talk a lot about in your second book, Plenty of Time When We Get Home, Love and Recovery in the Aftermath of War, about then the experiences that you and Brian have afterwards and the challenges that he faced. Um, so maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Brian was injured early in the war, and at that point, there were still huge gaps in the systems and services available to support wounded warriors and their families. Also, much less was known about traumatic brain injuries, much less was known about post-traumatic stress disorder, much less how those two conditions intersect and coexist often with major depressive disorder and substance use disorder, which is a really toxic stew when you end up with all four of those. I realized fairly quickly that the Army was not going to be able to give Brian the kind of support and help that he needed. And that's one of those other reasons that I chose to get out of the military was to help him on his road to recovery, because it was very clear to me that he was going to slip through the cracks and he was not getting taken care of. His mom and I fought to get him sent back to Walter Reed because Fort Campbell was absolutely unprepared to help somebody with his level of injuries. And when my five years was up, I joined him in the D.C. area where I've basically stayed ever since Uh, we got married. And I had kind of a crash course in brain injuries and mental health conditions. 
And that also drove me towards advocacy, like realizing how bad things were and saying, like, I want to do everything I can to make sure that this does not happen to anybody else. You also talk about Brian's Phoenix Day. Mm-hmm. So maybe you can tell us what does that mean exactly? A lot of the vets that I know who have been injured in Iraq or Afghanistan refer to their alive day which is the day that they didn't die. They stayed alive. But Brian calls it his Phoenix Day. And I like the symbolism of that a lot more. This image of arising from the ashes, reborn, wholly fresh and new, because it's been a long road to realizing that there is no going back to the way things were before. And there's no, oh, we're going to get back to normal. It's a completely new normal. And we have to accept this changed reality and kind of find who he's going to be in the future because it's not going to be who he was in the past. Yeah, well, you guys are doing that, though, at least from what I can tell. We're trying. Yeah. (laughs) It's hard. PTSD can be chronic and episodic. So Brian will have good periods. Sometimes they even last for years. When the second book came out was when we'd been doing really well for a while. And then since then, there have been challenging periods again. And every time it happens, I'm like caught by surprise again. Like, wait, I thought we were over this. No, no, we're not quite over this. Uh, And figuring out, okay, how do we get through this rough patch? What do we do about this situation? How do we manage this new wrinkle or this new challenge, this new hurdle? I know that statistically speaking, he's at increased risk of early onset dementia. And so that looms as a threat in our future. They told him shortly after he was injured that he was at increased risk of having seizures, but he didn't have one until last fall. I mean, it had been 15 years since he was injured and he had a severe seizure and fell and broke his collarbone and totally disrupted, you know, everything that we were doing at the time. And What that made crystal clear to me about trying to account for the costs of these wars is how much they ripple out both in time and in space. So it affected the injury affected him, of course, and it affected me as his spouse. And then it started to ripple beyond that. Like He was home with our kids when he had the seizure. So our daughter saw him have the seizure and it terrified her and she had to run and get a neighbor. So it's affected our neighbors. They had to call an ambulance. Now the county has had to pay the cost of taking him to the emergency room. And these costs just keep rippling out away from that initial injury. Um, I want to share a, a fact with you that blew my mind. There is still a civil war dependent on the VA books. What does that mean? So a civil war veteran late in life, got married, had kids, These particular girls uh, had some kind of disability where they got a pension after their father passed. And it was two up to a few years ago. One of the sisters is still alive. So she is still drawing a government pension as a result of her father's military service in the Civil War. When we think about the tail costs of today's wars, project that far into the future, and then even farther, because lifespans have continued to increase since the 1860s. Wow. And so that's actually, it, that sort of brings us to, you know, the costs and the decades and, and what you've done since. Um, what was it like then 
being at the policy realm of things, especially at the you know Department of Veteran Affairs, trying to now be inside the government influencing the decisions. Did you find it frustrating or harder than you expected in some ways? Trying to navigate a huge bureaucracy like that was incredibly frustrating. It is really difficult to turn a ship as big as VA. I mean, 360,000 employees. It's incredibly hard to affect change inside an organization that big. One of the things that became painfully clear to me after I left is that it's difficult to make change. But what I think I was unable to do was to institutionalize change. A lot of things when I left just kind of you know, with inertia back to the way that they were before I was there. And that was frustrating. Is there something, is there any kind of particular initiative or something you were particularly proud of in your time at the VA? Not strangling anyone. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think one of the things I'm proudest of was taking a major role in rolling out a nationwide baby shower for Um, predominantly women veterans, but for veterans. So around 2,500 veterans got baby shower gifts funded through external donations at uh, over 50 sites around the country, and that was really cool. It was really exciting to be a part of that. We did that both, of course, to help the veterans themselves, who benefited from getting some essential items for mom and baby to help them start out on the right foot, but also to raise awareness of the fact that that VA has maternity care coordinators and is here for them and come in and get the high-quality evidence-based care that you have earned through your honorable service. I was really excited to be part of an initiative like that. And what are you most excited about that you're working on now at CNAS? What I'm most excited about right now is the state-level benefits analysis that we're working on. So most people think about federal benefits, like VA. I mean, I I go to VA for my health care, and I use my GI Bill to go to grad school. And folks think about what nonprofits do to serve veterans. But every state has at least some benefits, and there's huge variation in them. So Virginia, because my husband is 100% combat disabled, our kids will get free tuition at state schools. And Pennsylvania, which borders us to the north, they would get like a $500 a year stipend. That is a huge financial difference for us as a family. Wow. So we're going to map those. And we're going to show visualizations of the different types of benefits by state. There are over 1,700 discrete benefits across the 50 states. So let me ask this question. Knowing what you know now and having seen both the impacts of war as somebody who served, uh, but also... Uh, the costs that come afterwards, uh, the challenges of coming home. And what does that tell us about how we should think about the costs of war and also about the decisions of whether we should go to war in the first place? I personally believe that we should be required to pay as we go for war a little bit more. We shouldn't be able to just borrow. Like People should be paying higher taxes while we're at war right now. People should have to pay the cost of these wars instead of being able to defer it and hopes that maybe that would make people care a little bit more about when we're going to draw these conflicts to a close and, and what we're doing over there. Because obviously the stories about the all-volunteer force, like we're choosing to go and people are able to be a little detached in the way that they weren't during the time of a draft, perhaps, right, Uh, from the human impact. So maybe if it affects their own pocketbooks, I think we should be taxing 
the American people to pay for these conflicts so that they feel the pinch right now. And yes, I think that when we are thinking about how much wars cost, we should consider the long-term cost of war and, and bear that in mind in, in terms of the overall calculation of how much it's going to cost. That's my CNIS colleague, Kayla Williams. She's a senior fellow and director of the Military Veterans and Society program here at CNAS. Next week on the podcast, being up close with Xi Jinping and Aung San Suu Kyi. I remember the first time I met her, you know, she was released from house arrest for three hours and driven to this Russian hotel. And it was the most interesting discussion I ever had with anyone. We hear from Kurt Campbell, one of the architects of the Pivot to Asia. That's next week on the podcast. Stories from the Back Channel is a production of the Center for New American Security and is produced by RES Audio. I'm Elon Goldenberg, and I've been your host. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, and while you're there, leave us a review.